You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collected work, number 107 by Rudolf Steiner, a collection of uh, lectures, entitled Disease, Karma, and Healing, Spiritual Scientific Inquiries into the Nature of the Human Being. This is Lecture 2, given in Berlin on the 21st of October, 1908. In this lecture, which should be regarded as part of the lead-up to our annual general meeting campaign, our aim will be to show that spiritual science, or rather the spiritual outlook on the world which underlies it, is in complete harmony and accord with some findings in specific scientific disciplines. As we can see, particularly in popular and public lectures, it is not so easy for anthroposophists to meet with full understanding from an entirely unprepared audience. Whenever spiritual science collides with an entirely unprepared audience, the anthroposophist must be somewhat aware that in many respects he speaks a different language from those who have heard nothing at all or only very superficial external things about insights that underpin the spiritual scientific movement. It is necessary to delve a little deeper to find harmony and accord between what can so easily be presented in modern science, that is, experiences gained from research into the sensory world, and what is given us through insight gained by means of spiritual, higher, supersensible consciousness. One has to go more deeply into these things before being very gradually able to gain a real overview of this harmony. Then, however, we will see the beautiful harmony existing between what the spiritual researcher asserts and the assertions, that is, the cataloging of facts, gained through research into physical realities. We should not be too unjust, therefore, toward those who do not understand anthroposophists, since they lack all preparations essential for grasping the findings of spiritual research. In most cases, therefore, they will inevitably conceive both the words and the concepts presented to them in quite different ways than intended. Greater understanding of spiritual science can only be achieved in a broader context, therefore, by speaking from a spiritual perspective, even to an unprepared audience, in an entirely and unashamedly direct way. Then, amongst these unprepared people, there will be a large number who say, this is all nonsense, fantasy, gobbledygook. There will always also be a few, however, whose inmost thirst of soul gives them an intimation that there is in fact something behind it. And these people will pursue it further and gradually find their way into it. Such patient delving is the important thing. And this is also what we can aim for. It will, therefore, be perfectly natural 
for a large number of those who attend a lecture on spiritual science out of mere curiosity to go away afterward and spread it about that this is a sect which disseminates its own special brand of codswallop. Knowing these difficulties, though, we can find the necessary calm and patience to countenance the natural process of selection. Members of the audience will find their own path, and some will form a core, enabling spiritual science gradually to flow into our entire life. Today I wish to use a particular example to show that well-prepared students of spiritual science accustomed to thinking and living with the notions which spiritual cognition awakens, can easily relate to the most apparently difficult findings of positive physical and sensory research. The student can gradually acquire a sense that the further he progresses, the more he will see how good a foundation spiritual research provides for all inquiry and insight. This will give the seeker the peace of mind he needs in the face of the tempests which are unleashed against spiritual science, because for many it speaks an entirely foreign language. And if we have the patience to find our way into this harmony, we will also gain ever greater certainty. When people say, what you tell us does not accord with the most elementary scientific research, close quote, Then the anthroposophist will reply, I know that perfect harmony in relation to all these facts can be established by everything spiritual science can offer, even if at present it may not yet be possible for us to agree. We will now consider the following as a special discourse for strengthening awareness in this regard. When the pupil of spiritual science has lived with a spiritual worldview for a while, he becomes accustomed to speaking of physical body, etheric body, and astral body in a way that allows him to make increasing use of these terms so that they guide and lead him when seeking insight into external things. He must gradually grow accustomed to seeing the physical corporeality surrounding him as differentiated rather than all of a piece. He looks at a stone but does not say that it is composed of one or another substance like the human body and that he can therefore treat this body in the same way as a stone. Even the plant, though consisting of the same substances, is something quite different from the stone. It contains both an etheric and a physical body and would fall apart if it were not entirely pervaded by the ether body. The spiritual scientist therefore says that the plant's physical body would decay if the etheric body did not preserve it from decomposition while it lives, combating this process of decay. If we consider the plant in this way, we find it to be an interweaving of the principle of the physical body and the ether body. Now I have often stressed that the most fundamental principle of the ether body is that of repetition. An entity solely under the sway of the principle of the ether body and the physical body would manifest the principle of repetition within itself. We can see this in the highest degree in the plant. We can see how it develops leaf after leaf. 
This is because the physical body of the plant is permeated by an ether body, characterized by the repetition principle. It develops a leaf, then a second, third, and so on, adding leaf to leaf in continual repetition. But even when plant growth comes to a stop above, repetition still prevails. At the top of the plant you find again something like a crown of leaves, which form the calyx of the flower. These sepals have a different form from other leaves, but you can still become aware that this is only a somewhat altered form of repetition of the same leaves, which ascend in repetition along the whole length of the stalk. Thus we can say that at the top of the plant, too, where it comes to completion, the green sepals are a kind of repetition. Uh, Readers aside, maybe it's sepals, S-E-P-A-L-S, I'm going to say sepals, sorry, end of readers aside. And even the petals are a repetition, though naturally they have a different color. They are still leaves, really, though greatly transformed. It was Goethe's great achievement in this field of botany to show that not only the sepals and petals transformed that not only are the sepals and petals transformed leaves, but that we should also regard the pistil and stamens as a transformed repetition of the leaves. But we find more than mere repetition in the plant. If this primary principle of the ether body were the only one at work, the ether body would penetrate the whole plant from below upward leaf would follow leaf without end, and the process would never come to completion. What causes this completion of the plant in the blossom, so that the plant can be fertilized and bring forth a new plant in turn? To the same degree that the plant grows upward, its astral body comes down to meet it from above, completing and concluding it from without. It brings to completion what the ether body would otherwise continue through eternal repetitions. It brings about the transformation of green leaves into sepals, petals, pistils, and stamens. We can therefore say that esoteric insight shows us the plant growing to meet its soul aspect, S-O-U-L, its astral aspect, and this causes the transformation we observe. The fact that the plant does does remain a plant and does not extend beyond this into voluntary movement or sensation is because this astral body that comes to meet the plant above does not take inward possession of its organs but only encompasses it from without, working in from above. Insofar as the astral body grasps hold of organs within, the plant passes over into the animal That is the whole difference. If you think of a flower petal, you can see that ether body and astral body work together in it, but that the ether body has, as it were, the upper hand. The astral body is not capable of extending its feeler threads into the plant's interior, but instead only works from without. If we wish to express this spiritually, we can say that what is inward in the animal what it inwardly experiences as pleasure and sorrow, joy and pain, drive, craving and instinct, is not internal in the plant, but continually descends upon it from without, 
This is certainly a soul-like quality. The animal turns its gaze outward, takes pleasure in its surroundings, directs its taste perceptions outward, and laps up any enjoyment approaching it from without, thus experiencing pleasure inwardly. Someone who can really observe things spiritually can see that while this astral entity of the plant also has joy and pain, pleasure, pleasure and suffering, it does so by gazing down upon what it brings about. It takes pleasure in the red color of the rose and in everything, everything that comes toward it. And when plants develop leaves and flowers, the plant soul, looking down on this, permeates and tastes it. At that point an exchange occurs between the descending soul part of the flower and the plant itself. In its soul nature, the plant world exists for joy and sometimes also for suffering. Thus we really see a sense of communion between our earth's plant cover and the earth's plant enveloping astrality, which embodies the plant's soul nature. What works from without as astrality upon plants engages the animal's soul nature inwardly, thus making it an animal. But there is an important difference between the soul nature active in the astrality of the plant world and in the astrality of animal life. If you carefully examine the astrality acting on the earth's plant cover, you find in the soul nature of plants a certain sum of forces. And all these forces, working in the plant souls, have a certain peculiarity. In speaking of the soul nature of plants, of the astrality which permeates the earth and in which the soul quality of plants unfolds, you must realize that these plant souls, in their astrality, do not live as do, for example, physical creatures on our earth. Plant souls can interpenetrate so that they flow together as in a fluid element. But one thing is peculiar to them. They develop certain forces, and all of these have the property of streaming toward the center of the planet. In all plants, a force is active that passes from above downward, seeking the center of the earth. It is this, specifically, which governs the direction of plant growth. If you extend the axis of plants, you arrive at the earth's center. This is the direction given by the soul nature descending from above. If we study the soul nature of plants, we find, therefore, that their most distinctive characteristic is of being penetrated by the rays of forces which all strive toward the earth's center. It is different when we consider in general terms the astrality around the earth which belongs to and calls forth animals. Plant soul nature would not as such, be able to call forth animal life. To generate animal life, other forces must permeate the astrality. The esoteric researcher who focuses merely on the astral plane can therefore distinguish whether a particular astral substantiality will give rise to plant growth or animal growth. We can distinguish this in the astral sphere. Everything that only manifests forces striving toward the center of the earth or another planet will generate plant growth. 
By contrast, forces that stand vertically upon the planet, yet also completely and continually circle around it in all directions, with exceeding dynamic mobility, reveal a different substantiality that gives rise to animal life. Wherever you undertake observations, you will find that the earth is wreathed in streams at every location, direction, and altitude, and that these form circles around the earth if one extends their direction. This astrality complements the plant astrality extremely well. Both interpenetrate and yet are inwardly distinct. Their inner qualities distinguish them. In other words, at one and the same location on the earth's surface, the streams of both types of astrality can interweave. When the clairvoyant examines a particular geographical region, he finds forces that strive solely toward the center of the earth, permeated by others that only circle round it. And then he knows that the latter contain what generates animal life. I have occasionally emphasized that the astral plane has quite different laws, also different spatial laws, from the physical realm. Tomorrow, when we examine some aspects of four-dimensional space, you will better be able to understand some of what I am now describing in the way of esoteric realities. Today, drawing only on esoteric facts, let us focus on one further peculiarity of this animal astrality. Taking a physical body, whether plant or animal, we must regard it as something spatially complete in itself. Then, in a sense, we have no additional right to consider something spatially distinct from it as belonging to it. Where physical separation exists, we have to speak of different entities. Only when a spatial or physical connection exists can we speak of a single body. This is not true in the astral world, especially not in the astral sphere which enables animal life to develop. Their astral configurations, living separate from each other, can constitute a single whole. A particular astral form can exist in a region of space and another, again spatially complete, can be present in an entirely different part of space. But despite this, these two astral forms, unconnected even by the least spatial thread, can constitute a single entity. In fact, three, four, or five such spatially separate configurations can be connected. And the following may even occur. Assume that you have an astral entity of this kind that has not physically incarnated in any way, and then you can find another form that belongs to it. Observing one form, you can find something occurring within it which you can call food intake, the consumption of something because certain substances are being absorbed while others are expelled. And, while you perceive this happening in the one form, you can notice that in another, spatially separate astral form, other processes are occurring which entirely correspond to what is happening as food intake in the first. One entity is consuming, while the other has a taste experience. And although there is no spatial connection between the two, 
The process in the one form corresponds fully to that in the other. Thus, spatially separate astral forms can indeed belong together. It can even happen that a hundred astral forms at a great distance from each other are so dependent on each other that no process can be accomplished without this occurring correspondingly in the others. When these entities then find embodiment in the physical realm, we can discover there reverberations of this distinctive astral quality. You will have heard, for instance, that twins often show parallel traits that correspond to a remarkable degree. This is because their astral bodies remain related, although they are embodied in spatially separate forms. When something occurs in the astral body of one of them, it cannot occur alone, but comes to expression also in the astral aspect of the other. Even where it manifests as plant astrality, the astral reveals this distinctive quality of interdependence between spatially entirely separate things. In relation to the plant realm, you will have heard of the peculiarity that wine stored in barrels demonstrates a very remarkable process when wine-making time comes round again. The principle which causes the new grapes to ripen is noticeable even in the barrels of wine from a previous year. I only wanted to mention that visible phenomena always testify to hidden aspects that can be brought to light by methods of esoteric research. From this you can see that it appears quite natural for our whole organism to be astrally composed of principles that are quite different from each other. There are singular marine animal forms that you can understand if you see them in the context of what we have begun to elaborate here about the secrets of the astral world. In the astral realm, astral forces, which mediate food intake, do not in the least need to be connected with those which regulate movement or reproduction. When the clairvoyant researcher searches astral space for forms that give rise to animal life, he finds something remarkable, a certain astral substantiality, which, when it works within an animal body, he has to see is particularly suited by the forces at work in it to transform the physical into an organ of nutrition. Now, quite different astral aspects can exist somewhere, which, when they implant themselves in a body, do not form organs of nutrition, but instead organs of movement or perception. You can imagine that you have, on the one hand, a system for intake of food, while on the other you have one for moving hands and feet. Out of the astral world, forces have descended into you, but these can stream together with quite, from quite different directions. One astral body of energies gives you the one, while another gives you the other, and these assemble in your physical body, because it has to be a coherent physical form, as dictated by the laws of the physical world. The different bodies of energy assembling from without must there form a single whole. They do not do so from the very outset. We can discover the effect on the physical world 
of what we have now ascertained through esoteric research in the astral realm. Certain sea creatures, Siphonophora, lead a very remarkable existence. We find that they have something like a common stem, a sort of tube. At the top of this, something develops that really has no other function than to fill with air and then empty again. And this process enables the whole structure to stand upright. If this bell-shaped form were not there, the whole thing attached to it could not remain upright. So this is a kind of balancing system that gives the whole thing equilibrium. This might not strike us as particularly unusual, but we can realize that it is when we see that the upper structure, which gives balance to the whole, cannot survive without nourishment. It is animal by nature, and animals must be fed. Yet it is unable to feed itself since it has no means to do so. In order for this life form to be nourished, there are certain outgrowths, quite simply true polyps, distributed at quite different places on its tube. These polyps would continually tumble over and be unable to retain balance if they were not growing on a common stem. But now they can take up food from without, passing it on to the whole tube that runs through them, thus also nourishing the balancing air system. On the one hand, therefore, they have a system that can only maintain balance, yet on the other, also one that can nourish the whole to sustain it. But now we have a life form whose food supply can be very limited. Only available food has been ingested. There is nothing left, and the creature has to seek out other locations where it can find more food, and for this it requires organs of movement. This is also taken care of, for other structures also grow upon the tube, and these can accomplish something different. They do not maintain balance, nor facilitate food intake, but instead have certain muscles which can contract, thus expressing water and so causing a counter-thrust. Thus once the water has been expelled, the whole structure is impelled in the opposite direction, enabling the creature to reach a food source. Jellyfish propel themselves forward by expressing water and causing this counter-thrust, and such creatures, which you can say are real movement forms, are also attached here. In other words, we have here a conglomeration of different animal forms, one type that only maintains balance, then another which only takes care of nourishment, and a third which facilitates movement. But such an entity wouldn't survive at all, would be unable to reproduce if that's all there was to it, and this is also taken care of. At other places on the tube grow spherical structures whose sole endowment is that of reproduction. Inside these creatures, an interior cavity contains male and female fertilization substances which fertilize each other there, thus producing more of the species. The business of reproduction is therefore assigned to specific structures in this system which are unable to accomplish anything else. In addition, you find other outgrowths on this shared tube. These are other creatures in which all function has atrophied, 
and which are only present to provide some degree of protection to what lies below. Here certain life forms have sacrificed themselves, giving up all functions to others, and have become mere covering or surface polyps. As well as this, one can detect long threads called tentacles, which are again metamorphosed organs. These do not have the functions of the other community members, but if the creature is subject to attack from another, they defend it. These are defensive organs. Then there is yet another type of organ called feelers. These are fine, mobile, and very sensitive organs of feeling and touch, a kind of sense organ. The sense of touch that is spread across the whole of our bodies here exists in a specific part. If we examine things esoterically, what are these saphonophora you can see swimming about in the sea? Here there is an astral confluence of the most diverse forms, structures for nutrition, movement, reproduction, and so forth. And because these diverse virtues of the astral substantiality have sought physical embodiment, they had to thread themselves into a common substantiality. Thus you see here an entity which in an extremely curious way prefigures the human being for us. If you picture all the organs that appear here in the form of autonomous creatures as connected, interwoven with one another, you have the physical human being and also the higher animals. Then you can see in a tangible way how realities of the physical world confirm what clairvoyant research tells you that in the human being too the most diverse astral forces stream together and are then held together by the human capital I and that when these no longer work together they allow the human being to break up as a being that no longer feels itself to be a unity, a single whole. The Gospels speak of numbers of demonic entities that have streamed together and inhabit the human being to form a unity. You will recall that in certain abnormal situations, in cases of mental illness, people lose their inner coherence. There are types of madness where people can no longer keep a grasp of the I, capital, perceiving that their being is sundered into different entities. They confuse themselves with the partial aspects that originally streamed together in the human being. A certain esoteric principle states that everything existing in the world of spirit will ultimately reveal itself somewhere in the external world. You can see, therefore, how the conjoined nature of the human astral body is physically embodied in the siphonophora. Here the occult world peeps through a keyhole into the physical world. If human beings had been unable to wait to acquire sufficient physical density before incarnating, they would be patchwork entities of this kind, though in spiritual, not physical form. Size has nothing to do with it. Such a creature belonging to the Coelenterata phylum, sorry, I spell, probably pronounced that wrong, end of the reader's aside, beautifully described in every modern treatise on natural history and evoking a kind of rapture in researchers, becomes inwardly comprehensible if we can understand it by considering the esoteric foundations of animal astrality.
So here you have an example which can be used when someone speaks to you in a quite different sort of language, saying that physical research contradicts views held in anthroposophy. You can reply that if one is patient enough to correlate these things carefully, even the most complicated of them will turn out to be in harmony. The idea people usually have of evolution is a very simple one, but in fact it did not unfold in such a simple way at all. To end, I would like to bring up a kind of problem intended as an assignment, and we will try to solve the problem implicit in it from an esoteric perspective. In studying a relatively low form of animal life, we have seen external evidence of an important esoteric truth. Let us now pass to a somewhat higher animal class, for instance the fishes, which can present us with even more riddles. I will only enumerate a few of their characteristics. We can marvel ever and again at the life of water when observing fish in aquaria. But you should not think for a moment that esoteric insights of any kind might interfere with such studies. If you cast the light of esoteric research findings on such phenomena and see the other esoterically perceptible entities teeming there to form these creatures as they are, such insight will not decrease but only increase your wonder. But let us consider an ordinary fish which already offers enormous riddles. The average fish has curious stripes running along its side, also apparent in a different form in the scales. These longitudinal lines run down both sides of the fish, and if you were to rid the creature of these, it would start behaving crazily. This is because you would deprive it of its capacity to find the pressure differences in the water, to find where the water buoys it up more or less where the water becomes denser or thinner. The fish would then no longer have the capacity to propel itself in accordance with water's pressure differences. Water has different densities in different places, and thus varying pressure is exerted. The fish swims differently on the surface than it does lower down. Through these longitudinal lines, fish experience different pressures, and all the movements caused by the water's motions. Now, the different points on these longitudinal lines are connected via delicate organs, described also in every book on natural history, with the fish's very primitive organ of hearing. And the way in which the fish perceives the movements and inner life of water occurs in a way very similar to that in which we humans register air pressure. It's just that First, the pressure conditions exert their influence on the longitudinal lines, and this is transmitted to the auditory organ. The fish hears this, but the whole thing is still more complex. The fish has an air bladder, which serves first to help it employ the water's pressure conditions and move about within certain states of pressure. The pressure exerted on the air bladder endows the fish firstly with the skill of swimming. But since diverse motions and vibrations act on the air bladder and treat it like a membrane, this works back in turn on the auditory organ, and with its aid the fish orients itself in all its movements. The air bladder is therefore actually a kind of stretched membrane 
whose vibrations the fish hears. The fish's gills are located where its head ends at the back and they enable the fish to use the air in the water to breathe. If you study all these things in the usual biological theories of evolution, you always find that evolution is depicted in a somewhat primitive way. People think that the head of the fish evolves a little more to give rise to the head of a higher animal, and the fins evolve to a somewhat more advanced stage to produce higher animals' locomotor organs and so forth. But things are not that simple if we use spiritual observation to study the processes involved. You see, for a spiritual form that has embodied itself as a fish to evolve to a higher stage, something much more complex must occur. The organs must in many respects be inverted and altered. The forces that act within the fish's air bladder conceal within them in a kind of matrix or mother substance the forces which we bear in our lungs. But these are not lost as such. Small parts of them remain but are inverted. In material terms, everything belonging to them disappears and they then form the human eardrum. In fact, the eardrum, an organ that projects outward a good distance in spatial terms, is a piece of that same membrane, and in it are active the forces that once functioned in the fish's air bladder. The fish's gills, furthermore, are reconfigured at least partly into our auditory ossicles, and thus in the human organ of hearing you find transformed gills. Now you can see that it is roughly as if the fish's air bladder had been inverted exactly over the gills. That's why our eardrum is on the outside and the auditory organs lie within. What is entirely external in the fish, those remarkable longitudinal lines by means of which the fish can orient itself, form the three semicircular canals in us, which enable us to maintain balance. If you were to destroy the three semicircular canals, the individual concerned would lose his balance and sense of orientation. Here we find instead of the simple process described in natural history a remarkable astral activity in which inversions continually occur. Imagine that you cover this hand with a glove, but inside it you would have elastic forms. If you now turn the glove inside out, invert it, it will be a very small structure in which the organs that were previously outside become tiny and those that were inside form a broad surface. It is only in this way that we understand evolution by knowing that inversion occurs within the astral in the most mysterious way and that the advance of physical forms arises as though from within this. The end of lecture two.